Sydney Harris was walking New York City one evening with a friend, a Quaker, who stopped to buy a newspaper. The newsboy was surly and discourteous as he made change, but Harris's friend looked him in the eye and gave him a warm greeting as he left. Southern fellow, isn't he? Harris asked. Oh, he's that way every night, shrugged the friend. Then why do you continue to be so kind to him? Harris asked. Why not? His friend responded. Why should I let him decide how I'm going to act? The Quaker obviously knew how to live independently. He was a person in possession of himself, with a solid center of gravity. It is such a center of gravity, an assurance of who we are and how we wish to live, that we must pursue if we are to develop genuine confidence. Unfortunately, most of us are more reactive. We allow the people around us to determine our attitude by their behavior or expectations. The first step for independent living is this. Dare to be a little eccentric. Those with strong self-confidence always have people they love and are close to, but they also have the courage to be different from those around them. We cannot live without the love of others. In fact, I will emphasize later the importance of building a network of strong friendships to enhance your self-image, but that is quite different from a neurotic need to please others. There are many people who would like to impose on us certain conditions of worth, and to submit to them is to submit to a life of scrambling. Dr. Neil Clark Warren, former dean of the Fuller School of Psychology, says that we waste large amounts of psychological energy studying the important people in our lives, determining what they want from us, and then trying to become the kind of person who can meet all those needs. If you buy into the strategy, calls come from every side. For instance, my mother wants me to be gentle and loving and nice. My dad wants me to be tough and confident and well-defined. My wife wants me to be a tiger, strong, successful, but sensitive. My friends want me to be open and willing to be weak, but courageous. The students at our school want me to be well-prepared and well-reasoned and thoroughly competent and productive. The seminary wants me to be conservative, but charitable, discriminating, and yet unconditional. They want me to be an effective fundraiser, an administrator, and scholar and teacher. Society, I think, wants me to be masculine and sexually aware. Sometimes I feel like crying out, I just can't do it! And somewhere I hear a voice, If you can't do it, pretend! And the challenge to be a good pretender becomes the most challenging challenge of all. We create masks and learn parts. We make ourselves into actors and actresses and quick change artists. We move from one part to another as rapidly as we meet some in our life who has different expectations. Other people think we're amazing. They're so proud of us. They seek our company. 
They promote us and give us merit, raises, and hugs and trophies. We are so important to them, but we have become strangers to ourselves. We have met everybody's needs but our own. The alternative to all this, according to Warren's felicitous phrase, is to return to our center and live from the authentic core within us. In psychoanalytic terms, it is seeing the ego as the decision-making entity, receiving the data from the ID, our clamoring instinctual desires, and listening to the equally clamoring superego, which includes all the shoulds, oughts, and don'ts we have heard from countless important figures, the ego then makes its decisions from that strong center, which is our core. We are empowered to make those decisions, says Warren, by embracing the unconditional love that God has for us. When we embrace that experience of grace and live from such a center, we will refuse to let either our persistent instincts or the people around us control our lives with their expectations and demands. It is a liberating step when we decide to stop being what other people want when it is pretense. Although the singer Rice Stevens had learned to work on the stage with great poise, the self-confidence she felt before audiences evaporated in social situations. She said, My discomfort came from trying to be something I was not. A star in the drawing room as well as on stage. If a clever person made a joke, I tried to top it and failed. I pretended to be familiar with subjects I knew nothing of. After watching herself feel so desperately in this way, she had a heart-to-heart talk with herself. I realized that I just simply wasn't a wit or an intellectual and that I could only succeed as myself. Then, facing my faults, I began listening and asking questions at parties instead of trying to impress the guests. I discovered that I had much to learn from others. When I spoke, I tried to contribute, not to shine. At once, I began to feel a new warmth in my social contacts. This brought me a new joy in being with people. They liked the real me better. Most studies show that women have more difficulty establishing their singularity than men. The old stereotype is that men live for their work and women live for love. Hence, when a relationship ends, a divorce occurs, or a friendship blows up, it is harder on women than on men. Does that mean that women are by nature weaker and more dependent? Not at all. It has to do with the fact most children spend more time during their early years with their mothers than they do with their fathers. Nancy Chodro has done some illuminating work in this area. She points out that a little boy soon realizes that he is not like his mother and that he must differentiate himself from this person. Masculinity is defined by separation. 
A girl, on the other hand, feels no such need and remains close to her mother. These facts have great consequences for the way we cope when we become adults. Males often grow up being good at independence, but having trouble with closeness. Females often grow up being good at relationships, but having problems with independence. Between two and six times as many women as men are diagnosed as suffering from depression and 70% of mood-altering drugs are taken by women. Why the difference? Maggie Scarf is probably right in suggesting a reason. Women are more depressed because they have been taught to be more dependent and affection-seeking and thus they rarely achieve an independent sense of self. A woman gives her highest priorities to pleasing others, to being attractive to others, to being cared for, and to caring for others. Women receive ferocious training in a direction that leads away from thinking, what do I want? And toward, what do they want? Such a dependent way of living leaves one very vulnerable. A woman's personality, still searching for shape, may take the shape of those people around her. And so long as she is attractive to people and pleases the important figures in her life, her self-image is good. But let her marriage end or our friendship dissolve or her kids shut her out, and she may feel empty and alone. Relationships are very important for healthy self-confidence, but we are in trouble if we base our value on how well we please the people around us. For sooner or later, most of us will find ourselves in some situation where it seems we are being criticized from all quarters. If we are to gain some sense of independence for ourselves, it is absolutely essential that we learn to handle criticism. Criticism is very difficult for some of us, and a person's self-image can be devastated by only one negative remark. But with practice, it is possible to learn how to stand secure in the face of our critics. Winston Churchill once wrote about British General Tudor, who commanded a division facing the great German assault of March 1918. The impression I had of Tudor was an iron peg hammered into the frozen ground, immovable. In the war, the odds were heavily against him, but Tudor knew how to meet an apparently irresistible force. He merely stood firm and let the force expand itself on him. Such strength in the face of difficulties and criticism is necessary if we are to be confident and independent. None of this is altogether new information. People are always telling us to live above criticism and to listen to our own drummer. But it is a long leap from good advice to actual independence. How then? Can you best assert your individuality? Here are some characteristics I have observed in people who lead healthy, nonconformist lives. They speak their minds. Our conversations might be more interesting if we expressed our opinions more freely. Where, for instance, did we get the idea that in polite society you do not discuss politics and religion? 
how in the world are we going to have interesting talk without discussing politics and religion? There are cantankerous sorts who disagree merely to start an argument. And I'm not advocating that you be disagreeable out of principle. But for every person who does that, you can point to 200 souls who are boring because they try so hard not to offend anyone. When Maggie Kuhn, former missionary and spokeswoman for the Grey Panthers, was 76, I heard her speak about some of the infirmities of her age. I have had cancer three times, she said, and I'm fine. I also have arthritis in my fingers and knees, and I keep moving. To what did she attribute all this? To the liberty with which she expressed herself. Old age is an excellent time for outrage, she said. My goal is to say or do at least one outrageous thing every week. Second, they do a lot of experimenting. Louise Fisher, the biographer of Gandhi, said that the great Indian leader always reserved the right to differ with himself. His life was an unending experiment, and Fisher says that he was experimenting even in his 70s. There was nothing stodgy about him. He was not a conforming Hindu, or a conforming nationalist, or a conforming pacifist. Gandhi was independent, unfettered, unpredictable, hence exciting and difficult. A conversation with him was a voyage of discovery. He dared to go anywhere without a chart. Third, they say no to others occasionally in order to say yes to themselves. I can't tell you how much of my life is spent at social engagements where I don't really want to be. A man said to me recently, Do you mean that these are social obligations required by your work? I asked. No, they're things that friends or relatives are always inviting us to, and we don't want to hurt their feelings. There are ways to say no with kindness, and even if at times we offend, that is better than living a saccharine life in which our actions are directed only by the desires of others. There are times when, in order to say yes to the best, we must say no to the good. There are also times when, for the sake of our own identity, we must resist the efforts of people who want to manipulate us. Anthony Brand tells of a woman who called a friend, asking him to contact her plumber and complain because the plumber hadn't installed the proper fixtures in her new bathroom. He thought it an odd request, but he could see that their friendship was at stake. He also could see that there was no sensible reason for him to act as a go-between for her. She ought to do her own complaining. He finally said no and lost a friend. In such situations, we can carefully explain that the request seems unreasonable, yet make clear that we care and do not want to lose the friendship. But when others make such compliance a condition of the relationship, then it may not be worth saving. Fourth, they are forever learning. The great painter Renoir's last years were in some ways triumphant for him. Although he had been vilified 
as one of the early impressionists, eventually he established a wide reputation and art dealers from all over the world were competing for his work, and yet he would not stop painting. His son Jean wrote, His body became more and more petrified. His hands with the fingers curled inwards could no longer pick up anything. His skin had become so tender that contact with the wooden handle of the brush injured it. To avoid this difficulty, he had a little piece of cloth inserted in the hollow of his hand. He twisted fingers, gripped rather than held the brush. It was under these conditions that he painted his women bathrooms now in the Louvre. He considered it the culmination of his life's work. He felt that in this picture he had summed up all his researches and prepared a springboard from which he could plunge into further researches. From his palette, simplified to the last degree, and from the minute droppings of color lost in its surface, issued a splendor of dazzling golds and purples, the glow of flesh filled with young and healthy blood, the magic of all-conquering light. Jean Renoir also tells what his father was doing the day he died. An infection which had developed in his lungs kept him to his room. He asked for his paint box and brushes, and he painted the anemones which Nanette, our kind-hearted maid, had gathered for him. For several hours, he identified himself with these flowers and forgot his pain. Then he motioned for someone to take his brush and said, I think I am beginning to understand something about it. I think I am beginning to understand something about it. A typical remark for a creative individualist, regardless of their age, such people live on the edge of new knowledge, new fields, and new discoveries. Fifth, they spend time with people who encourage their nonconformity. It is a rare gift to find people who are loyal and protect you and give you space to be yourself. You learn to value them highly and to give them the space they give you. I am blessed to have a wife who allows me my eccentricities. At times, we operate in our individual spheres, seeing different friends, pursuing different goals. But the choice to come together in the evenings, share our different days, and be loved without having to change or pretend to be something other than what we are. It is the same with Mark Svensson, with whom I have had lunch once a week for 18 years. From one perspective, we have little in common. He is older than I, and an immigrant from Sweden. I have spent half my time going to school. He has not bothered much with formal education. He loves Oprah, and I do not. Yet I eagerly look forward to our meetings because time has shown that Mark will allow me to be free with him. Some days I am euphoric over the writing I am doing. At other times, I want to spout off and complain about all the things that are going wrong and all the people who seem dedicated to doing me in. He may not like everything he sees in me, but I know that he will not bolt from the friendship because he disapproves of something. In part, that is because he is something of a nonconformist himself. Sixth, they are always creating something. There is another way to develop your individuality. 
to carve out time for creative enterprises. Eric Erickson talked about the need when we get older to fight off stagnation with what he called generativity. During some phases of our lives that need for generativity may be filled by bearing and rearing children, but when we have no children or when children leave the nest, the need for creativity lingers. Good therapists urge their clients to make as much contact with art and music as possible and to do more than look and listen. They should paint, draw, sculpt, sing. Someone once said that what our country needed was more poor music. By that, he meant that we need more music in the home. Create an on-the-spot for the sheer fun of it. Seventh, they stray off the beaten path. Don't keep forever on the public road, Alexander Graham Bell once said. Leave the beaten track occasionally and dive into the woods. You will be certain to find something that you've never seen before. John Huston Finley was an individualist who quite literally got off the beaten path. His versatility was remarkable. A teacher at Princeton, a college president at Knox College and the College of the City of New York, a commissioner of education in New York State, and an editor at the New York Times, he was greatly admired for his walking. For example, every year on his birthday, he stuck a blue thistle in his lapel, threw a blade scarf about his neck, and made off, hatless and coatless, on a jaunty loop around Manhattan Island before appearing at his Times office to put in a day's work. It is reported that one day a walk he took him measured 72 miles. More than once he walked from New York to Princeton. They like to be with children. Children are naturally nonconformists, trailing clouds of glory, according to Wordsworth. Jesus doubtless had many reasons for suggesting that we become as little children. But surely, one of them was that they can help us think less about other people's opinions and be more spontaneous. When Theodore Roosevelt and his family were in residence at Sagamore Hill, it was always a boisterous party. One day, he took his four children on an all-day picnic. The day was warm, but the children had no bathing suits. Roosevelt permitted them to go wading, and soon, of course, he was swimming in his clothes with them. As he and his children came into the house, dripping water on the carpets and filling the rooms with their shouts, Mrs. Roosevelt was heard to remark, I really have five boys. Finally, they often have flair. If we are true to our instincts, most of us will find that we naturally develop certain trademarks. Pat Kennedy recalls this about her mother, Rose. I remember mother's goodnight kiss when she'd go out with daddy. My room was dark and this vision was just sort of appeared, smelling absolutely marvelous. I was fascinated by her perfume. We all were, and as we girls grew older, we'd ask her what it was, but she wouldn't tell us. Finally, when she was 75, she told us, Now, we all, all wear it. It's our favorite perfume. But when we all started to smell alike, mother changed hers to something else. Rose Kennedy has lived so long and so well in part because she knows that God did not make us to smell alike, look alike, and act alike. Each of us was created unique 
and the discovery and expression of that uniqueness is one reason we are on this planet. Resisting conformity and developing some small eccentricities is one of the steps to the independence and self-confidence. If we are to gain some sense of independence for ourselves, it is absolutely essential that we learn to handle criticism. Criticism is very difficult for some of us, and a person's self-image can be devastated by only one negative remark. But with practice, it is possible to learn how to stand secure in the face of our critics. Winston Churchill once wrote about British General Tudor, who commanded a division facing the great German assault of March 1918. The impression I had of Tudor was an iron peg hammered into the frozen ground, immovable. In the war, the odds were heavily against him, but Tudor knew how to meet an apparently irresistible force. He merely stood firm and let the force expand itself on him. Such strength in the face of difficulties and criticism is necessary if we are to be confident and independent. None of this is altogether new information. People are always telling us to live above criticism and to listen to our own drummer. But it is a long leap from good advice to actual independence. How then? Can you best assert your individuality? Here are some characteristics I have observed in people who lead healthy, nonconformist lives. They speak their minds. Our conversations might be more interesting if we expressed our opinions more freely. Where, for instance, did we get the idea that in polite society you do not discuss politics and religion? How in the world are we going to have interesting talk without discussing politics and religion? There are cantankerous sorts who disagree merely to start an argument. And I'm not advocating that you be disagreeable out of principle. But for every person who does that, you can point to 200 souls who are boring because they try so hard not to offend anyone. When Maggie Kuhn former missionary and spokeswoman for the Grey Panthers, was 76. I heard her speak about some of the infirmities of her age. I have had cancer three times, she said, and I'm fine. I also have arthritis in my fingers and knees, and I keep moving. To what did she attribute all this? To the liberty with which she expressed herself. Old age is an excellent time for outrage, she said. My goal is to say or do at least one outrageous thing every week. Second, they do a lot of experimenting. Louise Fisher, the biographer of Gandhi, said that the great Indian leader always reserved the right to differ with himself. His life was an unending experiment, and Fisher says that he was experimenting even in his 70s. There was nothing stodgy about him. He was not a conforming Hindu, or a conforming nationalist, or a conforming pacifist. Gandhi was independent, unfettered, unpredictable, hence exciting and difficult. 
A conversation with him was a voyage of discovery. He dared to go anywhere without a chart. Third, they say no to others occasionally in order to say yes to themselves. I can't tell you how much of my life is spent at social engagements where I don't really want to be. A man said to me recently, Do you mean that these are social obligations required by your work? I asked. No, they're things that friends or relatives are always inviting us to, and we don't want to hurt their feelings. There are ways to say no with kindness, and even if at times we offend, that is better than living a saccharine life in which our actions are directed only by the desires of others. There are times when, in order to say yes to the best, we must say no to the good. There are also times when, for the sake of our own identity, we must resist the efforts of people who want to manipulate us. Anthony Brand tells of a woman who called a friend, asking him to contact her plumber and complain because the plumber hadn't installed the proper fixtures in her new bathroom. He thought it an odd request, but he could see that their friendship was at stake. He also could see that there was no sensible reason for him to act as a go-between for her. She ought to do her own complaining. He finally said no and lost a friend. In such situations, we can carefully explain that the request seems unreasonable, yet make clear that we care and do not want to lose the friendship. But when others make such compliance a condition of the relationship, then it may not be worth saving. Fourth, they are forever learning. The great painter, Renoir's last years were in some ways triumphant for him. Although he had been vilified as one of the early Impressionists, eventually he established a wide reputation and art dealers from all over the world were competing for his work, and yet he would not stop painting. His son Jean wrote, His body became more and more petrified. His hands with the fingers curled inwards could no longer pick up anything. His skin had become so tender that contact with the wooden handle of the brush injured it. To avoid this difficulty, he had a little piece of cloth inserted in the hollow of his hand. He twisted fingers, gripped rather than held the brush. It was under these conditions that he painted his women bathers now in the Louvre. He considered it the culmination of his life's work. He felt that in this picture he had summed up all his researches and prepared a springboard from which he could plunge into further researches. From his palette, simplified to the last degree, and from the minute droppings of color lost in its surface, issued a splendor of dazzling golds and purples, the glow of flesh filled with young and healthy blood, the magic of all-conquering light. Jean Renoir also tells what his father was doing the day he died. An infection which had developed in his lungs kept him to his room. He asked for his paint box and brushes, and he painted the anemones which Nanette, our kind-hearted maid, had gathered for him. 
For several hours, he identified himself with these flowers and forgot his pain. Then he motioned for someone to take his brush and said, I think I am beginning to understand something about it. I think I am beginning to understand something about it. A typical remark for a creative individualist, regardless of their age, such people live on the edge of new knowledge, new fields, and new discoveries. Fifth, they spend time with people who encourage their nonconformity. It is a rare gift to find people who are loyal and protect you and give you space to be yourself. You learn to value them highly and to give them the space they give you. I am blessed to have a wife who allows me my eccentricities. At times, we operate in our individual spheres, seeing different friends, pursuing different goals. But the choice to come together in the evenings, share our different days, and be loved without having to change or pretend to be something other than what we are. It is the same with Mark Svensson, with whom I have had lunch once a week for 18 years. From one perspective, we have little in common. He is older than I, and an immigrant from Sweden. I have spent half my time going to school. He has not bothered much with formal education. He loves Oprah, and I do not. Yet I eagerly look forward to our meetings because time has shown that Mark will allow me to be free with him. Some days I am euphoric over the writing I am doing. At other times, I want to spout off and complain about all the things that are going wrong and all the people who seem dedicated to doing me in. He may not like everything he sees in me, but I know that he will not bolt from the friendship because he disapproves of something. In part, that is because he is something of a nonconformist himself. Sixth, they are always creating something. There is another way to develop your individuality, to carve out time for creative enterprises. Eric Erickson talked about the need, when we get older, to fight off stagnation with what he called generativity. During some phases of our lives that need for generativity may be filled by bearing and rearing children, but when we have no children, or when children leave the nest, the need for creativity lingers. Good therapists urge their clients to make as much contact with art and music as possible and to do more than look and listen. They should paint, draw, sculpt, sing. Someone once said that what our country needed was more poor music. By that, he meant that we need more music in the home. Create an on-the-spot for the sheer fun of it. Seventh, they stray off the beaten path. Don't keep forever on the public road, Alexander Graham Bell once said. Leave the beaten track occasionally and dive into the woods. You will be certain to find something that you've never seen before. John Huston Finley was an individualist who quite literally got off the beaten path. His versatility was remarkable. A teacher at Princeton, a college president at Knox College and the College of the City of New York, a commissioner of education in New York State, and an editor at the New York Times, he was greatly admired for his walking. For example, every year on his birthday, he stuck a blue thistle in his lapel, threw a blade scarf about his neck, and made off, 
hatless and coatless, on a jaunty loop around Manhattan Island before appearing at his Times office to put in a day's work. It is reported that one day a walk he took he measured 72 miles. More than once he walked from New York to Princeton. They like to be with children. Children are naturally nonconformists, trailing clouds of glory, according to Wordsworth. Jesus doubtless had many reasons for suggesting that we become as little children. But surely, one of them was that they can help us think less about other people's opinions and be more spontaneous. When Theodore Roosevelt and his family were in residence at Sagamore Hill, it was always a boisterous party. One day, he took his four children on an all-day picnic. The day was warm, but the children had no bathing suits. Roosevelt permitted them to go wading, and soon, of course, he was swimming in his clothes with them. As he and his children came into the house, dripping water on the carpets and filling the rooms with their shouts, Mrs. Roosevelt was heard to remark, I really have five boys. Finally, they often have flair. If we are true to our instincts, most of us will find that we naturally develop certain trademarks. Pat Kennedy recalls this about her mother, Rose. I remember mother's goodnight kiss when she'd go out with daddy. My room was dark and this vision was just sort of appeared, smelling absolutely marvelous. I was fascinated by her perfume. We all were, and as we girls grew older, we'd ask her what it was but she wouldn't tell us. Finally, when she was 75, she told us, Now, we all wear it. It's our favorite perfume. But when we all started to smell alike, mother changed hers to something else. Rose Kennedy has lived so long and so well, in part, because she knows that God did not make us to smell alike, look alike, and act alike. Each of us was created unique, and the discovery and expression of that uniqueness is one reason we are on this planet. Resisting conformity and developing some small eccentricities is one of the steps to the independence and self-confidence.